Before we get into our message, I just wanted to read you a, a thank you card from Doris Combs. Those of you who know Doris, most of you who know her would know that her husband Lloyd died a little bit over a week ago. And uh, so several of you reached out to her. And so here's her note she wanted to share with you. To my Harvest Church family and brothers and sisters in Christ, thank you for your thoughtfulness. Thank you for your prayers and cards in my loss of Lloyd. Yours in Christ, Doris Combs. So join me as we pray for Doris and prepare our hearts to receive the message. Father, what is our comfort in life and in death? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I do pray for deep comfort for, for Doris at the loss of her husband. She can know that she wholly belongs to you and that she has life in Jesus. And she can be grateful for the gift of her husband that she had had for so many years. We're thankful, Father, that we can bear one another's burdens and pray for one another in times of loss as well as Give thanks in our times of joy. We ask, Father, for your help. Help me to make it clear in the way I speak from your word. Prepare our hearts to receive your word, to strengthen our faith, to give us a clearer vision of the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. Father, change us by the working of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. So we're going to read this text from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And a question right at the outset is, how do you know if you are born of God? How do you know if you're born of God? So in a few verses, we're going to get the answer to that. Uh, John has been dealing with that quite a bit. He's, this isn't the first time he's talked about it. He keeps repeating a lot of the same truths again and again and again, and I just figure we must need that repeating again and again and again. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands, commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So again, the question before us is, how do you know if you've been born of God? And that leads to another question is, what does it mean to be born of God in the first place? Again, John has brought that up several times, but here, here's what he says it means in the to total teaching of Scripture is, what does it mean to be born of God? It means God has miraculously given us new life. In, at the core of it, that's what it means. God has miraculously given us new spiritual life. Because the state that we're born into, and until he does that, is we don't have spiritual life. We're spiritually dead. We are like, hate to use the image, but spiritual zombies. We function outwardly, but we don't have the life in us that is being alive to God in Jesus. So 
the new spiritual life that God gives us is what it means to be born of God. We're, otherwise, we're not al- alive to God and his ways. Uh, the Bible speaks about dead works, not works of life in Christ. So the works that God wants from us are works that are done in and through Jesus Christ. So we don't have true life apart from being born of God. So it's very important to know, how can I know if I'm born of God? So John begins to answer that in this, in this passage. And the first thing he says, very straightforwardly, is by this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You know you've been born of God if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Christ is the same word as Messiah, and the Messiah was God's appointed, anointed one that he sent into the world, that he prophesied uh, through the prophets that there would be one coming who who would descend from uh, David and who would be uh, the savior of the world. So that's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the savior. He's the one that God had prophesied to come into the world to be the savior. And Lord and king, we don't yet see him fully as king until he returns the second time. So the miracles Jesus did while he was on earth testified to the fact that he was and is the Messiah, the Christ, and that Jesus was raised from the dead was the ultimate proof he was the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished what was needed for us to be born of God. So the only way we could be born of God was through Jesus, because in his death and resurrection, he provided what we needed to be born of God, to have spiritual life from God. So, of course, a major indispensable way we evidence we have been born of God is by believing Jesus is the Christ, that is the Savior. There is a spiritual imprint in our hearts that recognizes how we were saved, who we were saved by, that Jesus, through Jesus as the Christ. You receive the truth about Christ from the Scripture, and it abides in you, it remains in you, it dwells in you if you're born of God. So you always recognize Jesus is the Christ, is the source of your salvation. Our faith connection to God is not by our own spiritual insight or wisdom or religious inclination. Rather, it is a response to the gospel message made effective to us by the grace of God-generated new birth. So anyone born of God will continue to believe Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Once born of God, always born of God, and always believing in Jesus as the Christ. And this belief is not mere head knowledge, is it? It trusts in Jesus as the Christ and treasures. Trust and treasures. It values who Jesus is and it trusts in him. It's not just acknowledging who he is. So, for example, uh, do you believe, if you're married, do you believe you're married? How do you know? Do you believe in your spouse? How do you explain that? Well, you could give just the facts. Uh, In May 7th, 1988, I married Patty Smith. How do you know you're married? Well, uh, they gave me a document that said I was married. Okay, does it mean any more than that to you? Well, what's the good answer to that? The wrong answer is no. The right answer is I love this woman. We were united in covenant union, and I trust her and treasure her, and she trusts and treasures me in spite of all the reasons you would have not to, and we are committed to one another till death do us part. That is what it means to trust in Christ, to believe in him as Messiah. Not just check, I acknowledge the fact that he is that, but that I trust and treasure, value him, 
It's a, it's a, it's a loving faith. It's a relationship, not just a doctrinal point. And then uh, John goes on and says in verse 1, the second part, and everyone who loves the Father, and he just jumps from believing that Jesus is the Christ, saying everyone who loves the Father. So the assumption being, if you are, are born of God, you will love your Father. You will love the source of your life. Uh, so he says everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the very nature of the faith birthed into us by God causes us to love the Father and causes us to love the children of the, our Heavenly Father. That comes with a package. That's why Christ Church is not merely a social club or a religious organization, though local churches like ours do have social aspects and organizational aspects. That's not at the heart of what the church is. The church is a community of people who have been, had new life birthed into them that causes them to love God and love one another supernaturally. Otherwise, we wouldn't. We might like a couple of us, but we wouldn't love one another the way that, that God designs for us. Someone's in pain out there. <laughs> or having a great time. One or the other. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes, isn't it? Then in verse 2, John talks more about how we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So that's interesting. How does John say we know we love God's children? He could say, well, we, we meet their needs and we, and we love them in deed and in truth, as he said back in chapter 3. That would be true. But here he, he adds a, a, a different uh, evidence of the way that we know that we love the children of God. He says, we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So that caused me to ask, well, in what ways does loving God and obeying his commandments affirm that we love God's children? One way is that since loving God is the greatest thing that we can do because he's the greatest being, he's great in holiness, he's great in righteousness, he's great in mercy, he is awesome, he's, he's the creator, he is completely perfect in all his ways, so we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He deserves for us to love him completely higher than any other kind of love. And so with that, that shapes our love for everyone else. When we love God rightly, we're able to love other people better and rightly. The character of our love for others is founded and fed by our love for God. Our love for God fuels and shapes our love for others. A love for God and for his children are inseparably connected. And we know that in a family. It's a healthy family when kids actually love their parents, right? It's kind of not so great when they don't love one another. It kind of makes it hard and messes things up. So when we love God, we're able to love his children rightly. Another way that we know that we love the children of God because we love God and obey his commandments is John has said several times well, for example, in verse 21 of chapter 4, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if we're obeying that commandment, we're loving one another. And then another way that loving God and obeying him reflects how we love others is the specific commands get summed up under loving our neighbor. And so I see that, for example, this won't be on your screen, but I'll just read it, a few verses from Romans 13 where the Apostle Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So in other words, if you love your spouse, you won't commit adultery against them, right? Or if you love someone, you won't commit adultery with them. So, don't try to justify adultery by saying you fell in love. You fell all right, but not in godly love, obviously. If you love your brother or sister in Christ, you won't murder them. Hey, when's the last time you said to somebody you know, because I love you, I'm not going to murder you? Maybe they need to hear those words from you. Or, in a tamer version of that, you don't hold bitterness and anger against those you love. If you love your brother or sister in Christ, you won't steal from them, or borrow and not pay back, or not return. Sometimes we think, because a person's a Christian, uh, and we're a Christian, that, that we don't have to return stuff to them. So that amounts to stealing, unless they say, keep it. Or, if you love your brother, you won't love it if you covet. You, won't, you will not resent when they have good things that you don't have or can't have. So these are ways it can mean for us to know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. But that's not all there is to love. What John writes in verse 3 tells us more about what he means by loving. Loving God. In verse 3 he says, For this is the love of God. This is the love of God. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments. Love for God is not merely warm feelings for him. It does include strong, loving affections for him, for sure. You see it in the Psalms. David writes, I love you, O Lord. Other Psalms call God my exceeding joy. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord. My soul longs after you. I will be satisfied in you. My soul thirsts for you. So all kinds of words of strong affection. So our hearts ought to have strong affection for God. But as the great uh, group Boston wrote in 1978, love is more than a feeling. No, I'm not going to sing the song. If you know it, you can hear it in your head right now. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you can YouTube it. Um, but love is more than a feeling. And John says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Only he doesn't stop there. He qualifies that even further. He says um, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So John says loving God is not just outwardly keeping his commandments. He says we keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome, or they're not heavy. They're not arduous for us. Actually, we delight to keep them. You know there's all the difference in the world between doing something that you uh, delight to do and doing something that you hate to do. Even if the task you're doing is difficult, if you enjoy it, it isn't burdensome in the sense that you hate it and are miserable doing it. And there's a big difference between when someone does something for you with a bad attitude versus a good attitude. So contrast to groaning, slumped shoulders, eyes rolling, okay, if I have to. You know, there's a huge difference between that and, hey, I'm happy to serve you. You know, I feel bad for people who are in food service and service-oriented industries because they get a lot of flack and they get a lot of nasty, cranky customers. But, you know, you can see the difference in someone who's serving you, uh, you know, whether they're a waiter or a waitress or in retail. 
because they are happy to be doing their job versus not, and they're grumpy and grouchy. Or you've had a coworker, you know, someone who just is miserable doing their job, and, and, and you can tell what's the minimum they can get by if they are even concerned to do that. Uh, that's a whole different heart than I love what I'm doing, I love to serve. So that's how it is with us toward God. His commandments are not burdensome. Or when you're doing a task for someone you love, it makes the task satisfying and enjoyable, or at least more tolerable, because you love to please the one that you love. It's like the story of Jacob and Laban. Jacob served Laban for seven years for Laban's promise that he could marry his daughter Rachel. And it says in Genesis, and the seven years seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So, that just made me curious. How many of you would have worked for your future father-in-law seven years if that was the condition for marrying your spouse? Don, man, hand went right up there. I didn't hardly see any other hands on that. So, yeah, I know. But some are saying that hey, he should have worked for me for seven years for me to take this spouse off their hands, right? How many of you guys like shopping with your wife? <laughs> so you might say to your wife, you know, honey, shopping with you, seven minutes of shopping with you seems only like six minutes and 34 seconds. <laughs> I just love you so much. You can tell how it is between my wife and I. Actually, she's a very effective shopper, and she's, she's not long-winded, so that God knew what I could handle. So we often think God's people in the Old Testament before Christ came into the world is constantly miserable, finding God's commandments burdensome. But there are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of delighting in God's law, his commandments. So Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 119, several times, your law is my delight. Or other words in Psalm 119, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Or for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Or David writes in Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So even under the old covenant, they, those who were spiritual, so to speak, delighted and loved keeping God's, God's law. How much more under the new covenant, where we've had the Holy Spirit write the, the word of God in our hearts and making us alive to his word, should we enjoy obeying God? It's like Paul writes in Romans 6, 17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Again, often the conception of Christians is they're not doing what they really enjoy. They're, they're grumpy. They're like, we, we have a moral straitjacket on. We'd rather be partying it up and living it up and doing all the stuff that everybody else does. But, you know, because we're religious, we just commit our, we're... we're um, committed to being grumpy for the rest of our lives. And that's true if you're just a religious person and you're not born again. But if, you have, if you've been born of God, you should have a heart transformation going on where you more and more love to obey God's commandments because they're good. You love his word and you love cranking it out in terms of obedience. But some of you say but I'm really struggling with keeping God's commandments. Some of them often feel burdensome to me. So what's wrong with me? Um, 
I'm far from delighting in them. For example, I have a hard time with loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, which has been a major point of John's, major evidence of having true life in Christ. Or you might say, I, I have trouble giving thanks to God in everything. That's a command in the Bible. Or uh, rejoicing at all times. Or not being anxious. Not being sinfully angry. Being content with what I have. Loving my spouse. Shall I go on? No. I get it. I get it. So remember, not burdensome doesn't always mean easy. That's because we still have much opposition to obeying God. But we have more going for us than what is against us. And that's what John talks about in verse 4, the opposition of the world. So in verse 4, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. For, John says, and that for it connects with the prior verse like this, for the reason that uh, you will be able to keep his commandments and they will not be burdensome to you is that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And we need to review what John means by world. In, jo in John's writing, world is all that is anti-God, all that distorts God, all that trivializes God in us and around us. So the world is both in us and around us, according to John, because in chapter 2, verse 16, he said the world is the desires of the flesh, that's in us, the desires of the eyes, that's something that attracts us from the outside, and the pride of life. So the first two are, I don't have something and I want it. And the third one, pride of life, is I got something and I'm boasting about it. So the world, in this sense, is everything in us and around us that makes joyful obedience to God seem weird, awkward, lame, burdensome, oppressive, repressive, undesirable, impossible, stupid, hard, Anything in the world that causes that, anything about uh, obedience to God is, that feels that way is the world. The world makes a disobedience to God seem wise, cool, easy, fun, enjoyable, worthwhile, freeing, desirable. So the only way to be in this world and not be controlled by it is to be born of God. When you have been born of God, you have been given new heart capacities to obey God. You have a new want to obey God. New desires to delight in God himself and to love what God loves and hate what God hates. The world hates to have one of its own set free from its control, so it fights to overcome the liberating new life in you. So that's why it's hard. That's why if you're asking that question, it seems hard at times to obey God. Even though I know I want to love his, his commandments, it doesn't always work. And that's because there's still the residual opposition in us and around us that makes it not easy. But John's promise from God is it's 100% certain that everyone born of God overcomes the world. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. That's because Jesus, the Son of God, defeated sin, death, and the devil in, in, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For us, he did that for us. Everything that would keep us under the domination of the world the provision and power of this victory is granted to us in our new birth when we're born of God. And that's why John says this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How can John say this? He's not saying put faith in our faith. He's saying the reason we have the victory in our faith is because faith is something that God energizes in us through the new birth. Like he said back in, in verse 1, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And so if you're believing Jesus is Lord and Savior, you have been born of God, in which you are granted world-overcoming true life. You've got a life in you that the world cannot ultimately defeat. And the way it works out in this life is it gives you increasing overcoming the world. So since the evidence of being born of God is faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we who believe in him have assurance that Jesus' saving power is at work for us and in us. It's a faith constantly redirecting us to Jesus all the time, always back to Jesus. So no matter how strong our internal or external opposition may be, we put our confidence in Christ and his work for us and in us. Also, the reason faith is a victory is faith in Christ is world-overcoming victory because he is our advocate and that big word, propitiation, which means the sacrifice that satisfied God's justice and because Christ did that for us, all of our sins are forgiven in him, can be forgiven in him. And we have that certainty that John talked about in chapter 3 that if we are born of God, when Christ returns, we will be transformed to be like Christ. So from beginning to end, Christ is constantly for us, and we constantly put our faith in him. That's why faith is a victory, because we, in the end, will be completely transformed. We will completely overcome the world, even though now we, we have defeats and skirmishes along the way. It's, it's like getting a vaccine against a disease. You know, when you first get a vaccine, you don't necessarily immediately have immunity, but by faith in the vaccine and the doctor, the vaccine gradually causes, uh, causes your body to produce antibodies that will fight off the disease. And so that's what it's like, uh, and, and that creates immunity. That's what it's like to, to be born of God. We, we are born again, and we get the, the vaccine against sin and the world. And though you don't immediately overcome all influence by the world that would keep you from joyfully keeping God's commandments, more and more you do overcome until you completely overcome the world when Jesus returns. And finally, John mentions once more the unique role of faith and the specific object of faith by which we'll certainly overcome the world in verse 5. So John says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The only one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John said in 5.1 that those who believe in Jesus is the Christ have been born of God. So putting these thoughts together, we can say that all those and only those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, overcome the world with its constant gravitational pull away from God and true life. So Christ is more of a title of Jesus' role. He's the promised anointed Savior King, as we already said. And Son of God is more a title of his being. He is one with God the Father, the Spirit. He's equal with God, yet distinct from Father and Spirit. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Who, uh, he's the radiance of God's glory. Who can comprehend this? One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thankfully, what John said is, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, not if you comprehend how he can be the Son of God. So believing Jesus is the Son of God is guaranteed if you believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, you overcome the world. 
Throughout this letter, John has been saying that knowing you have true life in Jesus, eternal life, is evidenced three ways. Obedience to God, loving others, especially other believers in Christ, and true belief about Christ. That is right living, right loving, and right belief in Christ. Though all are indispensable in terms of evidence of true life in Christ, true belief or faith in Christ stands in the primary role that the others are founded upon. Apart from believing the truth about who Jesus is, the Christ, the Savior, and the Son of God, you, you don't have any of it. You don't, you don't receive life. You don't have the love of God. You won't have true obedience to God. So all those are evidences, but, but faith in Christ, the Son of God, is the central core issue for how we know that we have eternal life. So John's very clear. How do you know you've been born again? If you believe in Jesus Christ, as Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you love God and his people, and if you overcome the world. It's just that simple and that hard. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue our time of worship. Father, we recognize that apart from Jesus' death and resurrection, apart from his life in us and for us, we cannot overcome the world. We cannot overcome the sinful desires of our hearts. They would destroy our faith if they could. We cannot overcome the desires of the eyes that attract us to things that are not good. We cannot overcome the pride of life. But because of Christ having the ultimate overcomer, the one who overcame all things for us, we know that we have life in him if we trust in him, if we trust and treasure him as our Savior and our Lord. Father, would you cause the glory of Christ to be very rich in our hearts so that we will love one another and love you by obeying you and your command, commandments to not be burdensome. May you increase our heart, our love for your word and our love for obedience to your word and increase our compulsion to keep going back to Christ who is our advocate, who is our propitiation. That is, he satisfied your, your justice so that you could justly forgive us. So Father, we, we're winners either way. Whether we are battling sin, we come to Christ and if we are seeking to grow in him, we keep coming to Christ. Thank you for giving us such a powerful, complete, loving Savior who is guaranteed as we trust in him, we will overcome the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.